Welcome to Out of the Frame, conversations about photography. I'm Pia Johnson, your host, and this podcast features conversations about photography, creativity, and the world we live in. I'll be talking to other photographers, curators, academics, and researchers about their work, artistic process, and how they feel about contemporary photography today. Out of the Frame acknowledges the people of the Woiwurrung and Bunwurrung language groups of the Eastern Kulin Nation, on whose unceded lands we record each episode from. We respectfully acknowledge ancestors and elders, past and present. It was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Welcome to today's episode of Out of the Frame, Conversations About Photography. I'm Pia Johnson, your host today, and I'm introducing Trika Bolatangithi, a Fijian Australian artist to the podcast. Tarika is an artist, writer, and academic working across multiple disciplines, including photography, video, installation, publication, and curation. Her work explores the social, cultural, and political movement of bodies. Shifted between the languages of documentary, archival recovery, reenactment, and abstraction, Tarika explores the tensions and intersections of race, gender, power, commodification, and globalization. Tarika is the recipient of grants from the Australia Research Council, Australia Council for the Arts, Creative Victoria and the National Association of Visual Arts. And her work has been exhibited in public and private institutions in San Francisco, New York, Miami, Taiwan, Mexico City, Jogjakarta and throughout Aotearoa, New Zealand and Australia. Tarika also produces multidisciplinary projects centering the counter-narrative of marginalised histories and knowledges through curatorial collaboration symposia and public programming, such as the Contemporary Pacific Arts Festival Symposium, the Pacific Photo Book Project and the Community Reading Room. She currently lectures in the School of Art at RMIT University, where she teaches photographic theory and practice. Her PhD project, titled Somatic Sotia, Commodity, Agency and the Fijian Military Body, was awarded by UNSW Art and Design in 2017. Tarika lives and works on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. Hi Tarika, how are you today? I'm good, thank you for having me Pia. Thanks so much for joining us. I'd love to start uh, by getting you to introduce your interdisciplinary but I guess mainly lens focused practice to us today. Sure. Um, Gosh, where do I start? I mean... My practice has sort of evolved as everyone's practice does over the years. I mean, I, I started with a, a very sort of analogue darkroom practice as a young teenager, introduced to darkroom processing and through like a high school teacher and then ended up buying my own enlarger and sort of processing stuff in the bathroom at home. And then, you know, as digital things evolved, I remember around the late 90s or mid 90s, sort of discovering things like Photoshop at the same time as my lecturers in my undergrads. So we were kind of all doing that together. And now I think my work is kind of a hybrid of both. So I use a lot of um, medium format film, but I also work digitally and more recently been making a lot of work, which is moving image 
Uh, so combining, working, you know, across hybrid forms and video taking the form of like projection, um, installation, screen-based. So, yeah, I think I'm sort of at that stage where I'm making use of all the tools that I've kind of um, explored over the years and, you know, and, and also um, I suppose delving into sort of more um, almost you know, animation and illustrative CGI kind of stuff as well. Like that's through collaboration though, not my own. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Would you say that training is primarily photographic in terms of the way you think through and then come at all these other mediums? I think so. I mean, my work has always been really lens-based. I'm not sort of one of those artists who shifts between painting and I'm really interested in like the political and cultural aspects of the visual image so that's always been a really kind of core aspect to my work so it's like it's interrogating and challenging and critiquing photographic histories Mm -hmm. um so for the most part it makes sense for me to be using the same medium that I'm also interested in kind of unpacking and challenging and a lot of the time when you are creating I'm just thinking about some of your works you you do move across forms even in the same work it's not like you're just sticking you know, just to video or just to photography. While you do that with some, I love the way that you actually do, I guess, channel some of those kind of histories, gazes, representations within both moving image and animation and photography within a work or in an installation, I should say. Can you talk a bit more about how you make those decisions? Yeah, I think a lot of it is just sort of, it's one of those things where you just kind of respond or it evolves, like the material and the methods that you use uh, are sort of a result of multiple iterations and trials um, and that whole sort of praxis loop of of making and considering and then, you know, working out what's the best medium or material to kind of convey a particular idea. So not being fixed on a particular outcome um, frees up that sort of possibility for, for a more expansive practice, I think. Um, when I consider some of the decisions I make around using moving image, it's usually kind of based on a feeling of a limitation or my inability or not wanting to commit to one image as being able to hold a particular idea. It seems too kind of final. And I'm, you know, I'm in awe of people who are able to do that, but it's just never been a way that I work and if you kind of if you look back at the video works that I make they've always got some kind of split screen so I'm always kind of resisting that single framed telestory so there's multiple things happening and that kind of bricolage or that kind of visual montage is like it's it's sort of it's woven through all of my work and I guess the other thing that I do a lot or have in the past is kind of rely or you know utilize um, archival imagery and so that might be reproductions of sourced archival images from different collections um, that I've interacted with or been doing research into, or it might sort of trigger the creation of a sort of a staged work. So that's sort of how different sort of vernacular uh, practices have sort of also woven themselves into my work. But certainly, yeah, there's there's an element of montage, whether it's like the split screen motif that sort of continues to reoccur through my video work um, or not. Yeah, it's yeah. always there. <laughs> no, that makes sense. Actually, I think that's a really good um, way to talk about your most recent work, Value Form, because it has that um, structure to it. 
and I think there's a dynamic kind of interplay that happens within that particular work um, that was commissioned for the Tarawara Biennial this year. And it's incredibly evocative and playful, but it's also, for me, it also really does, the, the form of the, I don't know, split screen, is mm. that, um, really does make you think about the frame and makes you think about the fact that you are observing young female black bodies the interplay and I'm going to, you know, say in vertical, the sport of looking mm-hmm. as well um, and all the political undertones in that but also the agency of those young bodies and the poetics of it. I mean, it is a very beautiful work. You have created stunning photography and video and then the, I guess, would you call it animation or the drawing elements of gameplay mm. have this, yeah, really poetic way but also kind of scientific, you know, mathematical aspect to it so you're never really sure as a viewer I think how you should be feeling at any point you know you we actually I feel like when I was watching it I sat there um that I was being kind of interrogated at the same time you know you never felt really comfortable even though it was yeah absolute image it's a beautiful beautiful um play the quieter moments of observing you know blinking and arms and hands and then this yeah, jumping around. So do you think you could tell us a little bit more about, A, how the work came about, but also what, I guess, what you think, you know, especially to in the idea of the title, value form, mm. is is trying to speak to? Yeah, I, mean, I, th- I think, first of all, I just want to respond to, to what you said about not being, sort of being unsettled, I think, is what you mm, mean about yeah, how you were word. supposed yeah. to kind of, or how it sort of made you feel. And I think that's probably something that I... Uh, I'm sort of aware of with my work, like there are previous works where I've, you know, the question that's been driving the creation of a particular work has been, are you okay with this? Like it's a positioning of a political situation that I am, that I think is problematic. And so I am, yeah, I'm positioning those ideas in a particular way. So I, I I mean, I'm pleased that it kind of (laughs) landed like that. (laughs) Um, In terms of the, the title and I guess the, how the work evolved, Ideas around value and who is valued have always been a part of my work, I guess, for the last sort of, yeah, probably the last sort of 15, 20 years. You know, a lot of my my sort of early works dealt with uh, ideas around mixed race identity and, you know, notions of authenticity and being valued in one culture and not the other or in neither nor both, you know, like that I kind totally of... relate, yes. <laughs> yeah, and that sort of that shifting sense of value across, you know, as, as you move into different spaces and how that is shaped by the context that you're in. So uh, I guess that sense of being valued in different spaces and not valued in other spaces has always just been a part of my experience of the world. And so reflecting on that is a part of my work. I think with this work, so that earlier work is far more personal. I think over the years, I've sort of shifted to the kind of responding to socio-political, cultural events, things that are happening, things that I'm observing sort of in a political sense around my um, my Fijian culture, looking at the politics. But as an outsider, I mean, I think you understand that sort of sense of being an insider, outsider, wearing that sort of double or having that double sort of vision um, and experience of being um, a subject but also being... The, the person behind the camera. I think there's agency though in there. I've, someone asked me mm. recently why I take self-portraits 
and it, you know, one of the responses is I feel safe, you know. I, yes, I am behind the camera but I'm also in front of it and I can direct me, you know. I'm not feeling vulnerable in the way that I would if it was someone else behind yeah. the camera. And so, you know, I think there is that dialogue. I also think it is subverting that power play um, that's really traditionally there in, in photography. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's sort of, I mean, at a really kind of basic level, it's sort of like it's making the images that you would like to see in the world, but it's also um, it's also asking the questions that you would like to see people consider, you know. So it's not having the answers, but it's a provocation for people to consider things from a perspective that may have been marginalised or not considered or not part of the grand narrative that we are, in a Western context, um, sort of funnelled through uh, for all sorts of reasons. Can I ask on that, do you think, I mean, it feels like there's a performative aspect to it. I mean, sport, in in essence, is, you know, you're playing, you're on... I remember going to my sister's basketball games. There was a very much a pressure point until the game started and then you were on, you came off at halftime, you went back in, you know. There's that element to, or I guess a double element in the work, in value form where they're performing for the camera mm-hmm. this time rather than performing for the game as such. But we still get that sense of um, kind of an active sense of being in the body and, and performing. Yeah, and it's a, uh, I mean, I think, I, I know who, said it but you know there's like a there's sort of a trope around sports performance around you know that the body takes over and you know when you can kind of not over intellectualize what it is you're doing um you perform better uh but I think with this particular work I was really interested in in the ways that my daughters have internalized and embodied particular movements and how their upbringing in a in uh, sort of a Western context has not prioritised or valued the sort of body knowledge that they may have received if they'd grown up in a Fijian or a Papua New Guinean context. Mm. So my work has all, often been about sort of the work leads a sort of a discovery about aspects of my father's Fijian cultural heritage and it's my way of learning. Almost all of my works have some aspect of me researching to understand, you know, that that aspect of my ancestry. And so my children have been a part of that journey because while I'm trying to learn, I'm also trying to teach as their mother. And so it just sort of feels like a natural kind of process to have them a part of the work. And because by inviting them to be a part of the work requires an explanation and from me but then also an understanding from them about what they're getting involved in do they want to how do they want to be involved are they okay with that let's talk about what it's going to look like and how it's going to unfold so for both of us for all of us depending on how many people I'm working with (laughs) um you know it becomes we're both learning we're we're all learning at the same time and they're learning through their bodies by being you know by being physically implicated in the work yeah I think that's really important and and that probably um, takes me into a question that I have about family and, and involving family. And there's a great quote of that Carrie Mae Weems talks about, I think, her kind of earlier series around the kitchen table and things like that, where women photographers often portray their family and um, their domestic spaces and sometimes themselves as a way of witnessing and as a way of commenting on their lives and sharing their lives but also sharing their truth. 
And I feel like just the way you talk then about this discovery for you and the learning and then the teaching and then them learning and this kind of intergenerational passing of knowledge that is of you and from you but also from your father Mm. Um, and you don't live in Fiji, you know, like these kind of things. I think for me I feel like when I look at that work and know because obviously not everyone will know that they're your daughters or that, you know, and there's other works, um, First in Family, Apaniza, um, is that how you say mm-hmm. it? Yeah, Apaniza. Um, that not, it's not just your immediate family, it's like this kind of extended family and community as well. Can you talk more about the rationale beyond what you just said of this kind of learning and teaching, but more about, you know, it's quite a, I guess, vulnerable and brave space to share your family members in your artwork? And is it about your truth or maybe a a bigger truth as well? I actually think it comes back to that idea of value. Um, If if I sort of think about it, it's like we, my brothers and sisters who who were born and grew up in Sydney to two Fijian parents, you know, they, they don't see themselves represented in gallery spaces or, you know, without sort of going on about it, you know, it's that typical thing of, how Western media and, you know, Western institutions kind of frame Pacific Islander identities. And I think when I make works like Apanisa where I'm working with my brothers and sisters and their mum uh, and their children, I'm, I'm doing it in a sort of a, uh, in a way to share the nuances of our complex lives and our complex experiences within Australia because so often we don't, we just don't hear about it. Like I, and even, you know, no Fijian family in Australia is the same, you know, like there are all of those nuances of divisions around, you know, spiritualities and class. And I just feel like we, we tend to see very kind of narrow representations of experiences. And I'm really interested in sharing details from you know, that are more nuanced and Mm. um, revealing in a way. But in saying that they're revealing, these works are made collaboratively in the sense that with that particular work, Apanisa, I had a vision for the sorts, like because it was a a three-channel video work, I sort of had a rough sort of storyboard of the types of things that I wanted to shoot on a kind of limited time frame because my sisters all have busy, busy lives and, um, you know, are not all in the same place at the same time. So you know, we were kind of constricted in terms of how much time we had together when I was making that work in Sydney. But in actual fact, when we went to shoot, a lot of the the majority of the places and the scenarios were developed by them. They're like, hey, we want to go back to Waterloo and we want to um, oh, wow. photograph and I've got to show you the house, obviously the house that I visited and that they lived in for like over 20 years that dad had lived in during that time before he died. Um, but they're like, the tree that he planted is still there, so let's go film that. Um, you know that spot where he, like, carved his name into the ground? We've got to go there. Um, we want to go to, you know, we've got to go and look at Bola's exercise room and, you know, so they already had all of these things that they wanted to bring into the work and to have documented. So, yeah, I mean, in saying that they're kind of revealing that process of of, of sharing and inviting people into that lived experience, I, I don't see it as that sort of typical kind of like outsider observer in that particular instance yeah. it's um and you, you know the audio 
track for that particular work, which runs across the whole video, was a conversation with my dad's wife who was there who nursed him through his when he died. So yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a different style of collaboration, but that's that's how we roll. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. And each project is different. Yeah. You know. I guess in terms of maybe focusing more on this idea of bodies and cultural identity. I was asked recently, and actually I think you might have been part of that same workshop, but this idea of being culturally diverse, do you feel like you have to make work about being culturally diverse? And I think in certain environments like Australia, we have the opportunity to have those conversations in a way that's I think definitely more receptive in the last, say, five to ten years than previously. I'd love you to talk a little bit more about how like your personal story and your cultural identity, you know, has been woven through your work. You originally said around kind of hybrid identities and then neither nor, nor kind of space. But now through, yeah, I feel like a multi-generational lens, a different time and space, but that where works are not specifically about cultural identity as such, they're about talking to spaces, talking to social, political and cultural events and ideas. How do you feel like, yeah, you, you, what's your narrative, I guess, of cultural identity through your work up mm. until now? I mean, I think it's always, it's always sort of shifting. Uh, I think fairly early on in that, that sort of honours project-y time where I was looking at third space, mixed race identity, I felt pretty strongly early on that I wasn't, that the kind of narratives around like the tragic, torn sort of, existence of not belonging anywhere it didn't really resonate I for whatever reason I just sort of felt mm, I, I'm okay with it like I I just I can't be that or that I'm yeah. just me and so um I'm I'm happy to kind of embody that space whatever it is and I, I don't kind of buy into ideas around not Australian enough or what is Australian that's ridiculous but what you know not being Fijian enough or whatever like they're just that's they're ridiculous kind of concepts to me you know, my my sense of identity sort of is just sort of not fixed. <laughs> not really interested in any kind yeah. of um, yeah, any kind of structures that want to pigeonhole me as one particular thing in any in any sense. It's just, it, I don't know. So I know that's really kind of like that's comforting for some people, isn't yeah. it? I find that really kind of I, I find that suffocating. But I think yeah, sort of not feeling. I guess, conflicted about that. I think it sort of has helped me to take, take a step back and kind of view things from, a, from whatever, you know, my perspective of, of my experience and having experiencing and observing my brothers and sisters' experience of the world, my children and how they're, how they're experiencing this current world that we live in, um, it all feeds into the into the work that I make. I mean, my PhD work kind of was talking about, it was looking at a very kind of particular Fijian masculine experience, like the, it was looking at Fijian military embodiment. But in doing that, because of the kinds of work that these particular Fijian military people were undertaking in uh, with international, um, doing military mi migration work um, mm. and working overseas for different armies but also in private security. Quite often I mean, what I was really interested in was looking at the sort of the contemporary reading of their black bodies in these different spaces uh, and how often 
their bodies were misread as uh, or just sort of contextualised or understood within the umbrella of like a universal blackness. And it's that, that idea itself is like really, really problematic. But also it doesn't change, that, that problematic idea actually doesn't change the way that a Fijian soldier might experience and be perceived because of that sort of sense of a universal blackness or that person, you know, is Afri- like my, yeah. Totally. And so how bodies are read have always been really like interesting to me because of the way the reading of the body impacts the way that particular bodies can move through the world, how they're experienced. It's why I love the work of like Claudia Rankin and, and incorporated uh, audio into that value form work because she just so beautifully and poetically articulates the the microaggressions, the racial microaggressions um, and specifically is able to kind of break down the Serena, the way Serena Williams' body is read, you know. And so all that sort of stuff is the things that I'm thinking about when I'm making works like value form. It's sort of how a body's read and how does that impact the way that body can then move. And, it, yeah, I guess it kind of implicates the viewer as spectator of all of these things, but at the same time I guess it's sort of it's challenging that kind of passive observation. Yeah, I think the other thing that for me coming out of what you're saying also and especially I'm sort of thinking of the work that you did for your PhD and early on in your PhD where you did some weaving work and they kind of actually remind me of pixels and the way that we censor things as well. And so I feel like, you know, there's so many levels that you're working on here and that as observers or as readers of your work we can actually bring in some of our own experiences but also, yeah, be kind of forewarned to the ways things are read, seen, observed. And I think that idea of moving through, like, you know, how can a black body and a more nuance than just, as you say, universal black body or for me, you know, an Asian body, you yeah. know, and again, more nuance than just, you know, those kind of really big problematic brushstrokes that mm-hmm. um, we use. Um, and I would say we use across the globe in so many different ways that lack the complexity and that lack the way we actually, as human beings, move through the world. And I, I actually love the idea that you don't like to be boxed in and you don't like to have that kind of one kind of identity label, let's say, because for me, and I think coming from a hybrid identity too, it is so easy to then just put yourself into a box and then everybody understands and everybody can just go, oh, yes, you're that thing. But by not doing that, we can open up the dialogue. We can keep pushing the barriers and we also acknowledge that identity shift at change, as does the world. Yep. I think the thing too that I wonder, you know, you, you've mentioned Sydney, you've mentioned Fiji, you also spent time in Hobart when you were young. You know, there's this kind of really interesting kind of what I would say, you know, mobility within that. And I can imagine Hobart a few years ago was very different to what it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think or do you think actually any of that mobility or that little kind of what I call micro-migration mo- mm. loop have affected your work or maybe the perception of your body and the Fijian yeah, body? definitely. I mean, all of those things, are, you know, you can't help but be shaped by, you know, all of the things that you experience when you're growing up. Um, and, uh, you know, I reckon my reluctance to want to be pigeonholed is probably <laughs> due to the kind of the the sort of loose uh, 
upbringing that I had. You know, it was just my mum and I for the most part. And, you know, we lived in, uh, I think, 11 places by the time I was 10. Wow. So we were moving around a lot and that's in a sort of a, in that kind of triangulation that you just described. So really being kind of grounded in between Sydney and Hobart where I was born and Fiji for the first sort of, I guess, four or five years of my life, but then having all my schooling in Nipaluna, Hobart from kindergarten to year 12. Um, and yeah, look, Hobart, and I'm the only person of colour in my immediate family, so so that's always been an interesting position for me <laughs> to experience. I often find that a lot of uh, people who reference that work that I published around um, third space identity mm. is, is referenced by people doing adoption Oh, wow. Studies. I yeah. had no idea. Yeah, okay. it's really interesting. Um, yeah, so talking about like intercultural adoption yep. specifically. There's a great, yeah. um, total side note. Yeah. Lizzie Hu, the uh, Brisbane comedian, uh, she comes from a Australian mum and a Chinese Malaysian dad. She does this great um, line you know, skit thing where she said she walked up to her mum when she was really little and said, Mum, I'd really love a T-shirt that just had my mum's Australian, my dad's Chinese, my name's Lizzie and I come from Brizzy. Yeah. <laughs> and I totally understand how that feels. But she said her mum's response was, I'd really love one too. She said, but Mum, what would you put on the T-shirt? I'm going to have to censor this out. But anyway, um, she said... I just like to, because obviously Australian women with three Chinese looking yeah. kids constantly asked, oh, you know, how was the process? Mm -hmm. You know, Adopting. was it really hard? All yeah. this stuff. And she just wanted to have a T-shirt that said I fucked a Chinese man. <laughs> <laughs> but it is that sentiment, yeah. isn't it? Like, yeah. you know, especially if you're in a small community, predominantly white, mm -hmm. um, which is how I grew up too, in the suburbs of Melbourne. Yeah. I mean, they thought my mum was the nanny. They just didn't. Yep. You know, they didn't even see my Chinese-ness. Yeah. You know, because my dad was a dark head as well. You know, mm -hmm. like it's just there's so many assumptions that yeah. people make, right? Yeah. And then then when you write about it, you know, if they don't know what your background is, they just, yeah. I mean, I've, I hadn't even thought about that until you say it now and yeah. that makes sense. But it's, I mean, my experience in Hobart was really similar. Like I had, for the first seven years of my life, my hair was as straight as yours. And so mum... Would often be asked where she adopt, adopted this young South American child from. Um, <laughs> wow, when did your hair turn so curly? Yeah, around about like end of primary school. Okay, yeah. apparently it changes every seven years, so you never know. Oh, you know what? I always loved Watch curly out. hair. I've, I permed mine when I was like sixteen, <laughs> desperately wanting. You know, it's a disaster. Yeah, I was told menopause was the moment. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. yeah, who knows what's going to happen? Um, yeah, so. Yeah, Always wow. misrecognition. Um, it must I have been so hard for your mum too, right? I don't know. I mean, I kind of got playful with it. You know, in primary school, I remember going along and like making up stuff because people, you know, they always want to know oh, that question, where are you from, you know? And and so I would just kind of say, yeah, um, no, there, there, are, there are Tassie devils in Fiji <laughs> and stuff and just like tell random, wow. make up random stuff. Amazing. And, you know, oh, how do you get your hair so black? I remember being asked one place I was working. I was like, well, I dye it, you know. <laughs> and so it's like Tassie has changed a lot 
uh, over the last few years. But, you know, that I wouldn't say necessarily for the better. It's kind of more gentrified and mm-hmm. um, the kind of class inequities are more pronounced than ever. So, yes, there's, there's a more diverse community there, but uh, I don't know, there's so much else that's problematic about, I guess, living in any kind of metropolitan centre yeah. in Australia when it comes to race and equity and gender and, like, it's just, it's a, I think it's a mess. <laughs> I think, but I think that, as you say, in all metropolitan cities of Australia, I mean, Melbourne is just as, in some ways, worse. And it's interesting because I live regionally now. It's a really different set of things again. You know, it's gone to, there are racial minorities. I can probably count the amount of people yeah. that um, are not you know, classic Anglo-Saxon white. Mm-hmm. But there are massive class issues. Yeah. So there's other, you know, like and I think that's the the things that we don't always talk about anymore. But, yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, regional parts of Australia are also so very different. Each little community has its own vibe and, you know, some regional spaces I would walk, I just want to get out of straight away and others just, you know, amazing and beautiful and really gentle spaces. So, yeah. We're, a, we're an interesting place. <laughs> do you think, I mean, again, you write a lot about the reading of spaces. Do you think that has been informed by, yeah, the very many different spaces you've come into? And I guess as an adult and as an academic, um, moving into big white Western institutions, you know, I think, I wonder if that's part of that. Yeah, I think um, I was actually thinking about this when I was cleaning my teeth this morning. <laughs> like, um, I was thinking about how I wonder if like, because I've kind of, I was telling my daughters, I feel like I'm, you know, like I've got multiple cat lives and, you know, because I've kind of gone from like goth, punk, (laughs) you know, thrash, death metal musician and, oh, you know, dancer on TV and, you know, musicals and theatre, you know, all like kind of had these multiple versions, which we all have, but they've all been quite different. Nothing's kind of naturally in my sense of things it's it's all sort of merged uh, logically but you know when I kind of look back at things it's it's kind of a it's a funny old mess which and is the best mess well, yeah, yeah I mean I wouldn't change yeah. anything but I feel like um yeah I wonder if part of my comfort in in that mess is kind of a survival <laughs> mechanism <laughs> you know like a yeah. being able to shift between different spaces like yeah, I, I, I guess it's just like a, a thing that comes with like age and, and reflecting on things, but how much of that has been, has come out of um, a need to kind of, I don't know, I think I'm also just curious about a whole lot of stuff and I don't, I don't know, I like to explore and understand all the things so I don't kind of get yeah, locked you into. Get, you're curious. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's I it. think curious and learning how to survive are good things. You're recently part of a publication on women of colour in academia and it was published by American Journal of Peace Psychology. And I guess the reason why I'm fascinated about this kind of aspect and, you know, I found the article incredibly humbling and quite disheartening, but I also realised I share a lot of the struggles um, as a somewhat relatively new academic. Part of me thought, you know, the very simple kind of, I guess, intersection of being female and of colour are two really simple things to think through that are actually not that simple when you put them in an, in a, 
in any institution actually. I think academic is a very particular type of institution mm. or I'm starting to learn that. But I think the what I loved about the publication was the individual um, stories that each of the participants shared. And rather than talk about the problems of that or the things that were quite troubling to me mm. um, that came out and I could imagine as a workshop or symposia that was run, that would have been pretty full on day. I, I guess moving through that idea of curiosity and survival and adding agency to that. You know, how do you find your agency in carving what, you know, the career you've had to the point, you know, as an academic, you know, what institutions you do want to engage in or not maybe, or the type of classroom you have. And, and for me, I think the type of classroom that I've seen you have is a really inclusive one and a really dynamic one and really embodies a kind of democratic way of thinking about pedagogy and curriculum and the lived experience. Mm -hmm. So if you don't mind talking a bit more about that idea of agency that you've been able to forge for yourself and your career, I think that would be really interesting. I know. Is what you're calling agency, uh, like what what you perceive as me making bold choices Probably. and decisions. I don't know. Thinking how fabulous you are doing. Them. I mean, <laughs> I guess determination about something, but also, I, but that sounds like I have like a plan or I have goals or something, which I kind of don't. I think I just don't want to be. Um, yeah, I just I stand up for myself. And I, uh, that is probably a trauma response. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, you know, maybe like the tools that you develop when you're bullied in childhood, Therefore they, they strengthen back. you, you know, yeah. when you yeah. just go into a different space and institution. Um, yeah, I mean, I just, I'm, I'm pretty clear about advocating for my rights. Yeah. Um, but that's not always easy coming from a woman of colour position. You know. No, but I also kind of have this worldview of like, well, what what have I got to lose? Because I don't have a mortgage. I don't have, uh, not because I own a place, <laughs> I just don't have you know, anything. And so I, I kind of have, uh, you know, got this semi-outsider perspective of like, I've got nothing to lose. Yeah. So, so I may as well say the thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But also to... Um, and find your people, you know. I was like, going to ask, yeah. I, I don't think I'd do that if I felt alone, you know. So yeah. the the power of the collective or the people who've got your back is super important. Yeah, yeah, definitely. One more question on photography. You take some really interesting subjects, one around the archive and power and and then praxis as well and in a kind of really varied broad way. How do you think photography, whether it's your own archival or just, you know, the medium in general, can actually shift or change the way we perceive, I guess, bodies and identities in spaces. Do you think that as artists we can go right back to value form? You know, it made me unsettled, it made me rethink. Do you think photography or lens-based works have in their vernacular, in their language, a way of communicating these kind of things in their own form or importantly or, you know, uniquely? Yeah, I do. I mean, it's it's like it's the indexicality of the image or what we perceive to be because, of course, we live in a time that, um, you know, the veracity of the image is in flux. <laughs> you know, I think about how so much of what we experience of the world is sort of is shaped by a European or a Western lens um, and not just visual culture but also, you know, when I look at the books that my 
my daughters read, so often they are expected to empathise with the experience of a, you know, a, a white male protagonist, right? So they have to get into his headspace. They experience the world through his uh, vision and, and, and form. And so, and of course, you know, in 2023, there are, you know, there's no end to the incredible resources of fictional narratives and visual storytelling that now include the vision, a vision that they, as my, as my daughters, you know, women, young women of colour, can experience in terms of, you know, connecting with a worldview that is more similar to their own, not being expected to, to transform their experience and to see the world through a Western gaze. So that's, you know, I think one of the incredible things about photography and that what visual image makers can engage in is um, that kind of opening up more nuanced visual representations, but also the kind of slippage that occurs between, you know, truth and fiction. I just, I, I feel like it's endlessly expansive and, yeah, full of, of possibility. And that seems like a really good place to be. Yeah, totally. I agree. So finally, what's next for you? I feel like many other people, uh, I really need to travel. Like it's just, I haven't sort of, I've done a lot of like smaller local trips, but I'm just really wanting to go and be in a different space. Um, so international travel needs to come next because I just, I need that kind of, uh, I need a shake up, you know, and I need to experience new things and people and places. So I haven't really got anywhere in particular you know, that's first on the list because I'm just kind of desperate at this point to go anywhere. Um, I anywhere think, that's elsewhere. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. The last work that I did um, was really fun to make. It was really challenging because I had kind of uh, working across disciplines and in, in, you know, collaborating with folks and uh, who had a whole range of expertise, which was really, really enjoyable and generative for me. And so I, I'm looking forward to probably expanding that value form work, maybe not focusing on the experiences of my daughters, but working with other athletes across different codes. But I think that's a work and a kind of a, a kind of process and concept that I want to keep exploring. Uh, I'm also really interested in, so that's kind of like a, an embodied kind of movement work that I've been doing over the last kind of 18 months. But I'm also kind of interested in recovering some of the sort of social documentary work that I started with the Carissa Marcy project and through the reading room and the reading in the Mali ARC project it's been really amazing connecting with the Pacific community in Mildura specifically and I'm really keen to kind of connect with some of the seasonal workers who you know from Fiji who have moved into regional Victoria um, yeah, connecting with them and understanding and getting a sense of their experience of migration and movement. Yeah, wow. Lots there. Look, thank you so much for making the time. It was fantastic to um, really get to chat to you about your practice. Thank Thanks, you. Pia. Out of the Frame is supported by RMIT University Press Play Studio is produced by Pia Johnson, sound engineering by Alex Edward, music by Steph O'Hara, and graphic design by Brent Lederwitz. 